Well, good afternoon and welcome to Redeemer Church. I'm Rod Callajane and one of the pastors here, and I want you to know that we are so glad that you have joined us this afternoon. Um, just a, a quick note, someone handed me a note as I came in today and said, the nursery is open today, so if that serves anyone's needs here today with kids, uh, you're welcome to do that. It's down in the lobby area on this end of the building. Now, in case you may be new with us today or here for the very first time, let me offer uh, just a couple of words of explanation. This is what we've been calling our celebration service. It's the culmination of about eight months of planning and prayer that have led up to this weekend. Back in March, we set a goal of reducing or eliminating the indebtedness on this facility, which is currently about $1.1 million. Um, and we've asked our congregation to save and to sacrifice and to trust God to make this happen. Now, the bulk of uh, our gifts came in this morning. It's the largest single offering that we've ever taken at this church, and we're going to reveal the results a little later in this afternoon's program. We chose a ballpark theme for this weekend, as you may have already noticed, and we've been calling this Sunday our Miracle Sunday Challenge in anticipating uh, in anticipation of not only reaching our goal, but hitting it out of the park. And I know some of you came here today to hear our guest speaker, DJ Rayburn, um, and we're happy that you did, but in addition to having DJ with us to share some of his story with us, we're going to celebrate the God who makes all things possible because of his great love for us. So feel comfortable uh, worshiping with us today. After this celebration service, there is food available, and you're invited to stay for some ballpark-type food, or just hang around and chat, but we are happy to have you here, and thank you for joining us. We hope that you will be blessed for having been here uh, today. Many months ago, when our staff first began to think about this service, we were discussing the possibility for a speaker, and one of the staff said, that guy, Spanky, who ushers at the 11 o'clock service, <laughs> he's always talking about his son, the major league umpire. What if we were to ask him? So we did. And I think his mom and dad may have even driven to Cleveland a couple of weeks later to see him at work and to ask him to come today. The end result is that he said yes, and we are certainly glad he did. DJ grew up in Portland, Michigan, here, until about age 14 when his family moved to DeWitt. He attended here at Redeemer during his high school days um, at DeWitt, where he was uh, a multi-sport athlete, graduating in 1995, and then he went on to Hope College and played two years of football and four years of baseball. Yes. <laughs> Yes, there's some Hope College folks in the audience today, too. You know, just as a side note, a, uh, a few others from the DeWitt baseball team went to Hope to play about that same time, which in many ways introduced Hope College, I know, to our family. And uh, DJ was one of those influences that led my own kids to choose uh, to attend uh, Hope as well. DJ became a minor league umpire in 2000 and worked his first major league game in 2008. 
He was hired by Major League Baseball in 2014. He currently lives outside of Nashville, Tennessee with his wife, Cherie, and three children, Iris, Max, and Cody. He attends the Fourth Avenue Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. And we are certainly delighted that you're here today. Help me welcome DJ Rayburn. Wow, thank you. Is that on? Is it on? There it is. It's really on. It's still on? Good? Okay. Thank you very much. Whew. Let's see. What an honor to be here. Uh, calling balls and strikes in front of 30,000 is really no problem for me anymore, but you put 300 people in a church auditorium, <laughs> and my hands start getting a little sweaty. Oh, hold on. I think I got something to take care of that. That's better. Was that better for you, too? We want to put it back on? Oh. Public speaking is, um, is an honor, and uh, I've done it a few times. Um, it certainly has a way of humbling you at times if you fall on your face. Uh, Clint Hurdle told me something about humility at a plate meeting one time. Clint Hurdle is one of the managers uh, that um, takes it upon himself to kind of give it to younger umpires uh, in a... In a you know, friendly way, or sometimes not so friendly, but we're at a plate meeting, and I decided to, before the game, kind of give it back to him one time, just kind of gave a tongue-in-cheek sort of arrogant comment back to him, and he said to me, DJ, there's two types of people in baseball. There's those that are humble, and those that are about to be. <laughs> he always gets the last word, and I, it was a great lesson. I just wish somebody else would have taught it to me. <laughs> there's another public speaking story I have. I was, uh, attended the Jim Evans Academy of Professional Umpiring, and in 2008, I became the head instructor there. I, I went back and taught for eight years, and, and uh, it was a goal of mine to be the head instructor, and I made it, and I was, I was the head instructor there for one year, and uh, as the head instructor, I was kind of in charge of emceeing the, the banquet dinner at the end of the five-week period, and um, I'm sitting up there at the head table. There's 150 uh, minor, or, uh, prospective umpires in the, that would give anything to trade spots with me. And so I was feeling pretty proud up there at the head table right by the podium with the microphone. And during the course of the dinner, I flagged down one of the servers and politely asked for an extra pad of butter. You know what dinner banquets, they give you like that little pad of butter on a, on a plate? Well, they, I had one and used it on my first roll. And after I was handed a second roll, I thought I could use one more pad of butter. So I politely asked her, and she informed me that the policy that she was instructed was one pat of butter per guest. <laughs> I, I thought she was joking, so I played along, and I smiled and threw in a little extra charm and asked her again for an extra pat of butter, and she told me she'd have to go get the manager. At this point, I realized she was deadly serious about the pads of butter. So a few minutes later, uh, another young lady walks towards the table. Assuming this is the manager, she asked me if there was a problem, and I said, certainly no problem. I was just in need of an extra pat of butter, and if I could get one, that would be great, so I could finish my delicious roll and dinner, and we could get on with the evening. She said, I'm sorry, our policy here is one pat of butter per guest. 
And at this point, I became a little irritated, and maybe my pride got the best of me, and I told her, well, maybe you don't realize, but, you know, I'm kind of the head of this whole night. I'm the MC, and kind of put this whole thing together. If you could get me an extra pat of butter, that would be great. And uh, she said to me, no, I did not realize who you were, and maybe you don't realize who I am. And I said, no, I don't. Who are you? She said, I'm the one in control of the pads of butter. <laughs> I wish I could take credit for that story. I just kind of stole that from, a, from an old umpire named Marty Springstead who, who uh, passed away a few years ago after about 50-some years of service to Major League Baseball as, a, as an umpire and as a supervisor. And, and uh, that was his story, and, and uh, he gave me permission to use it years ago, so I took advantage of that. Um, like I said, this isn't my first time speaking. Uh, not my first time speaking here at Redeemer, actually. There were two other occasions that I got up in front of the congregation or a group of people here at Redeemer and spoke. And uh, uh, many of you were probably here for one or, or both. Uh, I suspect a, a couple of you were here for both of those occasions. And the reason I bring that up is because both of those occasions uh, are part of my foundation of uh, who I am today as a person. They played a big part in it. In fact, so much of the foundation of who I am as a person and as a Christian come from this community and this church. But before I get into all that stuff, the stuff that'll probably make me tear up and look foolish, let's talk baseball, and more specifically, umpiring. Uh, I just finished my fourth season as a full-time, on-staff, major league umpire. Officially, it's my sixth year, so next year will be my seventh. Uh, the reason for that discrepancy is, as a AAA umpire, I worked 437 games as a fill-in. Uh, the need for AAA fill-ins at the major league level comes from mandatory time off that I now get as a staff umpire and injuries, sickness. Uh, yes, umpires have families, and, they, and there's family emergencies to go home to. And so um, at any given night around the major leagues, 15 games for a full schedule, you could have 10, 12, even 15 AAA umpires working up in the big leagues as fill-ins. Uh, in my opinion, that's the most difficult thing to do in any uh, professional sports officiating. Working as a minor league umpire without a contract without the protection of the union, doing all the same responsibilities and having all the power of a major league umpire but not having that safety net is a very difficult thing to do. I worked 437 games, and I know guys that have worked 1,000 games as AAA umpire. It's a very difficult thing to do, and, uh, but, but also a time where you're getting looked at by the major leagues to decide if, if they're going to hire you full-time. There are 26 weeks in a major league season, and I'm on the road for 22 of those 26 weeks. Uh, if you add in spring training and the four days that I get uh, that we go out to Arizona for a retreat for physicals and um, points of emphasis and policy changes and stuff like that, it equals out to I spent 182 nights in a hotel room away from my family, which is roughly 50% of the year. For those of you as mathematically challenged as I, it's 50%. So, me being here right now, just 19 days after the end of the regular season, should tell you how I feel about everyone here at this church in this community. My first umpiring job came at the age of 16. Uh, it was down at Marshall Fields in Lansing. Don't even know if those are still there, if they're still used, but that's where my first job came from. Uh, my best friend at the time, Jay Lights, who was still a very close friend, his father had a friend that worked for the Lansing Parks and Rec. And they needed umpires to cover the 11 and 12-year-olds down at Marshall Field. 
So he contacted Jay, and, and Jay contacted me, and along with another friend, we spent our summers down at Marshall Field getting yelled at by someone else's parents. <laughs> we figured we could stay at home all summer and hear it from our own fathers, or go down to the ballpark and hear it from someone else's. At least there we'd be getting paid. <laughs> I fell in love with officiating almost immediately. Uh, I continued to umpire baseball and officiate basketball tournaments throughout my time in the summers in high school and college at Hope College. It was actually my college roommate, Jay Lights, the same Jay Lights who pulled me into this thing to begin with down at Marshall Field, that con uh, convinced me and encouraged me to chase the dream of becoming a major league umpire. We were uh, sitting around a dorm room at Collin Hall, those of you familiar with Hope College. We were in room, uh, what did we say it was last night, Mike? Three, 318, I think, is was the room I was in. And we were having one of those college discussions of what we were going to do with the rest of our lives and our dreams and hopes and everything for the future. And I told Jay that if I could do anything for the rest of my life, I would want to be a major league umpire. And he said to me two simple words. His response, very matter of fact, was, that's attainable. And it never had occurred to me before that, that it was attainable, that I could actually do that if I, if I tried and put my mind to it and things worked out. Just two simple words from a friend that believed in his friend planted a seed in my mind that I could attain my dream. Flash forward now to 2014, I get a phone call from Joe Torrey, who's my boss uh, and uh, uh, vice president of operations for Major League Baseball. You know the Joe Torrey that, that won all those World Series and everything. He, uh, he calls me in 2014 to congratulate me and tell me that I'm going to be on the full-time staff of Major League Baseball. I, after getting off the phone with him, making a few phone calls myself, I text my friend Jay one word that simply said attained, and he called me back within minutes to congratulate me. So move, going back to Hope College, uh, finished up in uh, December of 99, and was gonna go to umpire school in 2000. So my parents, as a graduation present, got to pay for more schooling. <laughs> Don't worry, it's only a five-week course, and it's a fraction of the cost of Hope College. So my journey began to the minor leagues. Well, before I go any further, there's another person that had a lot to do with my success in officiating that I need to mention. He's here today and has been a friend and a role model of mine for a very long time. In fact, he may have had an influence on you or some of your kids if they've gone to DeWitt High School in the last 17 years. Mike Bryan and I officiated countless basketball and baseball games together. In fact, it was him who did the legwork to go to umpire school. He, there were two at the time, and he did all the legwork, all the research on the two schools. I just wanted to go, and I left it up to him. Uh, he's always been smarter than me anyway, and to decide which school to go to and it was him who decided to go to the Jim Evans Academy of Professional Umpiring. So there we are, all signed up. He had just finished his student teaching at Hope. I had just finished up some classes to get my degree, and we were ready to go. We had our non-refundable deposit sent in, and Mike was faced with one of those decisions that can change the course of a life. He had to decide between going to umpire school with me, being my roommate there, chasing the dream, or accepting a job at DeWitt High School, full-time teaching job in the JV baseball coaching. It wasn't a tough decision for him as I remember. I think the hardest part for him was telling me that I would have to go it alone. 
Luckily for all of you and, and DeWitt High School, you got to keep one of the most honorable and loyal persons I have ever known. So as you can see, it took a number of supportive people to get me to where I am today, as my mom and dad, I'm sure, can attest. When I meet people for the first time and they find out what I do, they usually have some common questions come up. Oh, usually I get, well, if I get what your favorite team is, I typically start planning my exit strategy from the conversation. Their questions usually give me an idea of how much baseball knowledge they possess, and one of the ones I usually get is favorite ballpark. My favorite ballpark to work in is Fenway Park. Uh, for me, there's no, there's no substitution for historical significance. There's just, it's just one of those places where you can feel history, and if you've never been to Fenway Park and you have a chance, go. It's, uh, it's a great place to watch a ball game no matter who's playing. Um, I, never wor I didn't work there. Those 437 games, it was the only ballpark that I didn't go to as a, as a fill-in. Just randomly uh, didn't make it there. When you're a fill-in, you bounce around from different crew and you fill in where, where they're needed, and, and whatever crew I was on never got to Fenway Park. So my first time there was as a full-time umpire my, my first season. And uh, my name is actually, I got to sign my name on the inside of the Green Monster, if you're familiar with Fenway Park, the Green Monster in left field. You can go in there, that's where they keep, there's a scoreboard on it, and the guy that keeps score, puts the, puts the score up, is inside of there, and I sign the wall. Don't worry, they allow you to do it when you go in. Uh, sometimes people ask me my favorite position to umpire. For me, and for most of us, we like the fact that we get to rotate. I work the plate one night, third, second, and then first. Um, NFL referees can work the same position for years before they change positions. And, of course, we work more games in spring training than they work all season. But for me, <laughs> being able to rotate uh, really keeps things fresh. It changes your responsibilities from day to day. I like the fact that my job changes based on weather, uh, stadiums, teams, and what position that I'm covering. Now, nobody gets to the major league level by being the best AAA third base umpire but you can certainly make a mistake there as easily as you can anywhere else. And working the plate is by far the most challenging physically and mentally. But a cab driver, Tamika, once told me, pressure is privilege, and I never forgot that. Don't be impressed. She drove me from home to the airport many times, so it's not like I just remembered her name from one time. But she told me pressure is privilege, and I think about that every time I'm working the plate. My most memorable game to this point was Derek Jeter's last home game at Yankee Stadium. Uh, I was working second base, and I don't know, if you're not familiar with that game, YouTube it, go back and watch the entire ninth inning. It was, it was pretty incredible, and, and being at second base kind of gave me the, the luxury of, of watching a little bit instead of being focused on, you know, calling balls and strikes. The Yankees were up by three going into the top of the ninth against the Orioles. In a game at the end of the year, it was the second-to-last series but the last time Derek Jeter was going to be at Yankee Stadium. They're up by three going into the ninth, and, and, and that day, Jeter hadn't really done anything real special. Of course, the, the place was packed there to watch him, and, and nothing really incredible had happened at that point until the ninth inning, top of the ninth. Yankees are up three. Their closer comes in and blows the save, so now we got a tie ball game going into the bottom of the ninth, and as the top of the ninth is going on, and the Orioles are getting runners on base, I peek up to the scoreboard and I realize Jeter is third up in the bottom of the ninth. I thought, there's no way this is going to happen. You couldn't have scripted it any better. The game gets tied. We go to the bottom of the ninth. Jeter's the third hitter. 
Leadoff guy gets on, they bunt him over, first pitch to Jeter, base hit in the right field, winning run scores, the go place goes up for grabs. It was a really cool day. And in fact, the whole series was pretty fun. Two days before, I was working the plate, and I'm pretty sure I'm the last person to call Derek Jeter out on balls and on strikes. <laughs> I quickly became the least popular person in New York. And if you ever get the chance to meet him and you bring that story up, he will probably try to tell you the pitch was outside. It was not. <laughs> so at this point, I've given you four answers to the most common questions that I usually get. How'd you get started as an umpire? Favorite stadium? Favorite position? Most memorable moment? So now I'm going to switch gears and get into something a little more personal. My faith in Jesus Christ and what Redeemer has meant to me. Now you would think life on the road can be pretty tough trying to live a faithful Christian life, and it is, and it can be. There's temptation around every corner, and you're certainly more vulnerable when you're alone than when you're surrounded by a supportive congregation like this. But if you take a deeper look, you can see endless opportunity to share faith, hope, and love from coast to coast, city to city, and ballpark to ballpark. In fact, our group, and it hasn't been that long, within the last 10 years, our dynamic as Major League umpires has changed quite a bit. We have weekly prayer calls that a number of us are on. We have groups of guys that have paired off into Bible studies that, uh, that get on the phone or meetings during spring training. And we have a group called CFC, which is Calling for Christ, that was started by Ted Barrett, who's a Major League umpire and also an ordained minister who has performed a number of umpire weddings. But things like this didn't always come easy for me to talk about. My time at Hope College, I started to question my foundation, my faith, as many of us do, I'm sure, in our 20s. And that period lasted for almost a decade for me, and then moved to something even more dangerous, I think, than questioning was indifference. Indifference is a bigger problem and more dangerous, I believe, than the questioning period, because if we're not thinking of God and the greater good, then where do we develop a moral compass? Where does that come from? Now, I'm not going to try to answer any of those questions today, and I'll leave that kind of thing up to Pastor Rod and the rest of the professionals. But I bring it up to illustrate how thankful I am to have had this place, along with my mother and father's faith, as a foundation that was always under the surface of my soul. Well, fortunately for me, in 2008, I became a father, and that foundation that was laid here came rushing to the surface. So my goal now as a parent of three is to lay that foundation for them so that when they get older and they get into their 20s and start having these questions, that they have a foundation to fall back on like I did. My, my foundation certainly started at home, but as many things, it takes a number of minds to mold us number of minds and hearts to mold us. And although Jesus can do it on his, on his own, the design created for us is relationship. I was baptized by Pastor Rod in Town Line Lake at family camp. I attended youth programs here, and I had an awesome youth minister named Deb Kirchen. And she showed me something one day that I'd like to show to you, but I need some help. I need to, can I get two people to come help me? I just, you don't have to talk or anything. You just have to hold something. Thanks, guys. All right, this is something Deb Kirchen taught us 
in the youth ministry. Take that and walk that way. You come with me. Okay, stop. Oh, we went too far. Let's see here. Let's go to 90. We'll be optimistic. Okay, hold that right there. Okay, so this is 1 through 90. And if we take each inch of our life, or each inch, and represents one year of our life, if you look at ages 15 to 18, which is basically our time in high school, it's this much. Now, speaking to the, the youth, I know that sometimes it's hard to look past high school or middle school when things are tough, but if you look at it like this, it's a very small section of your life. It can be an important one, but I've always remembered this demonstration that Deb Kirchen showed us that day, because even if it's a period of your life that happens down here for three or four years, it's just this much of your life. Now, my wife would say, this too shall pass. Thanks, guys. And that's her way of this demonstration. I just wanted to share that because I've always wanted to share it with, with a group of people, and that's the first time I've done it, and I've always remembered that. Now, I mentioned earlier that this wasn't my first time speaking here, and I'd like to tell you about the other two times. The first time, coincidentally, and I'm not sure if you even remember this, Ron, but I was chosen to speak by that youth group that I was a part of to the entire congregation. Now, I say coincidentally because the topic that I was supposed to talk about, I was in charge of assuring or reassuring the adult congregation and the elders that if we added on to the church, that as youth, our church would continue to grow, and we would be here to see that growth. In fact, I actually used the line in my speech, if you build it, we will come. On a side note, I was also cutting the grass in the summertime, and I knew a bigger building would mean less grass to cut. <laughs> so now there's a basketball hoop over the spot where I spoke that day, and we're all in this beautiful building, so I would say that was a wild success, huh, Rod? <laughs> the second time I spoke here, was one of the most difficult and proudest moments of my life. <clears throat> Those aren't just words, that's the truth. If you've ever spoke at the funeral for someone that you both loved and admired, perhaps you can sympathize. March 4th, 1999 was the day that I stood right here, actually, it was right here, in front of a completely full auditorium, and I read this speech, about the life of a man that gave me the keys, <clears throat> the keys to success. I've kept the speech. It's right here. And I pull it out from time to time and I read it to remind me of that day. Now I know you're not supposed to read speeches, public speeches, but I wrote this one out so that I could get through it. And I'm, gonna go, I'm going to read the rest of what I have to say for that same reason. Jim Lutzke was a part of the physical community in my life for far too short of a time. But his legacy, honesty, and integrity live on in myself, my mother who learned from him and took over for Jim as athletic director, Bill McCullen and Mike Bry, and probably a number of others that I don't know about. 
I don't know how many of you were here that day in March, but I will never forget that celebration of Jim's life. Being asked to speak at his funeral was one of the proudest moments of my life because he had such a lasting impact on me as an adult. He gave me words to live by when he told me, always give 100% and do what is asked of you. I've tried to apply that to umpiring, parenting, being a spouse, and my walk with Christ. And if I look back on my life from this point, I can see that most of my troubles and problems have come when I was not applying this to one or all the aspects of my life. He taught me the importance of being a role player when he said, don't worry about playing time, worry about playing well. I try to take the time I have to make the most of it. Time is something that we don't really have control over, is it? But what we do with that time is certainly under our control. I think the best thing he taught us was something that, not something that he said, but something that he did daily. He taught us that if you want someone to believe in you, you have to start by believing in them. And this is something that I think we can all apply. And so when I get back home on Tuesday, I will be attending a draft to select my 9- and 10-year-old girls' basketball team. And along with my own 9-year-old little girl, I will attempt to pass on to them the foundation that was laid on to me from this community and this church. Thank you. We have an opportunity here to um, ask GJ some questions. We, we gave you the opportunity to give some feedback to us, and I have some, a list of questions, and uh, DJ has been um, willing to, to just field a couple of these questions for you today. Um, and so it's my privilege and honor to be able to ask some questions. So um, DJ, first, thank you. Um, you do an amazing job public speaking, by the way. Oh, thank you. Um, I, just, I just think it's absolutely wonderful. <laughs> and I love that phrase that you said, that pressure is a privilege. So I'm going to put you under just a little bit of pressure okay. here and ask you just a couple of questions. And one that I really want to ask is... What's the craziest thing? Of all the things that you see on the diamond, off the diamond, wherever you are in the ballpark, what's the craziest thing that you have ever seen in your profession so far? Craziest thing. Uh, a lot of crazy things happen in the minor leagues. If you've never been to Clinton, Iowa before, let me be the first to congratulate you. <laughs> Mom and Dad have been there. It's one of the... It's, it's, there's an animal rendering plant there, so the whole town stinks, <laughs> literally stinks. And across from the ballpark, there's a slaughterhouse where they're slaughtering animals day and night. Well, one day we're working there, and a pig gets out onto the field. Right about the time a guy hits a ball into the gap. Now the guy's running the bases, and everybody's kind of looking at us like, what to do? And as the guy's running the bases, the pig runs over and grabs the baseball and swallows it. Now, this has never happened to me on a baseball field before. <laughs> so the guy finished running the bases, and we got together as umpires and came up with the best thing we could decide. We just called it an inside-the-pork home run.
That's great. <laughs> yeah. It's punny. It's very funny. <laughs> so one of the things, when I, when I watch sports, and I don't watch sports a lot, as most of you know, but one of the things that always kind of makes me a little feel uncomfortable is when they, um, the announcers, they start going to the replay. And, and I'm, I'm always wondering what's going to happen if the replay doesn't show what the officials have called. So what's, what's your view on instant replay and how it's used in the sport now, unlike how it u- wasn't used before, and how does that affect how you, how you officiate games? Yeah, so instant replay is uh, relatively new. In fact, my first year on staff was the first year that instant replay was expanded in, in Major League Baseball, and we love it as a staff. Um, it's, it's a safety net. Uh, we're out there to get plays right, and when we do make a mistake, it's great to be able to go change it right there. Now, in the replay center, it's our peers. Uh, we all take a turn inside the replay center in New York watching games on TV and, uh, and judging um, replays. And so having our peers uh, on the other end of that, uh, the headset uh, is nice. And, you know, it used to be I, I worked up and down without instant replay, and um, when you'd make a mistake and it affected the game, it would affect you as a, deeply, and it would, it, there'd be weeks, days, and sometimes weeks of sleepless nights because you were on ESPN and your family was getting phone calls, and, and you know, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. We used to get you know, phone calls at home from irate fans left, leaving messages and stuff because information is out there nowadays, and so to have that safety net and to not have that side of things occur is really nice, and so... We're, we're really in favor of instant replay and, and like the way that it's gone so far. Okay, excellent. So one of my favorite baseball movies growing up was Mr. Baseball. I don't know if anybody saw that before, but there is this dynamic when he goes overseas with these unspoken baseball rules that not everybody knew in this other country. And so what's, how does... The, how do the unspoken rules of baseball operate today and, and how, do you, how do you be an official in a game where these rules are, are there, but they're not really there. So baseball's really in a, in a period right now of, of evolution. The game's changing uh, with, with technology and with um, just an influx of players from all over the world with different cultures. Um, the game has really changed just in the last five, and, and especially if you expand it out to 10 years. Um, so those unwritten rules have been there for a long time, and I'm still learning a lot of them. Um, I had the uh, I was fortunate enough to work with a guy this year, um, Jim Wolf, whose brother is Randy Wolf, who was a major league pitcher. And so Jim, uh, being a brother of a, of, a, of a major league pitcher, knew a lot of those unwritten rules, and he actually taught a few of them to me this year that I didn't know. But um, as umpires, you have to be aware of them because you have to know why things are happening. Um, this year, working in Detroit, uh, we had a game get out of hand late, 14 to 2, the Royals were beating the Tigers, and they brought a guy in that didn't want to be there. He, he, didn't, want to, he didn't want to be there pitching. He was a, a closer, uh, and he didn't like the fact that he was in mop-up time, and he, and he ended up getting shelled and getting hit a few times. Some runs were scored. A guy came around and scored from second, so he decided to bean the next hitter. Now, for, that, for me, that was a pretty easy one, but there's a lot of other like little rules that I'm still learning, and that's part of my continuing education um, as an umpire is talking to the older guys when when something occurs on a field we get to we you know we talk after the game and and ask questions about you know a lot of that because the balls and strikes the safe and outs and the fair fouls um, I've been doing for a long time but those kind of 
unwritten rules and, and that stuff kind of has to be passed down to you. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking sure. the time. Let's, let's show our appreciation this afternoon. Thanks. Well, I know you've all been waiting for the big uh, news on this morning, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But you know what? I think we're going to pray first and just give God thanks for this day before we have uh, the news uh, shared with us, okay? Let's pray together. Lord God, in the beginning you spoke into darkness and chaos and there was light. You imagined this earth in all of its complexity and beauty and called it into being. You created us in your own image and you gave us a home to live in and we believe that you do miracles. But even if you don't, you're still God. Lord, we remember how you changed water into wine so that a wedding party could continue and you calmed a storm in your disciples with words of quiet authority. You transformed a boy's picnic lunch into a meal for a multitude with plenty left over. We believe you can do miracles, but even if you don't, you are still God. Lord, we remember how you healed a woman from 12 years of bleeding and rejection. And you asked Bartimaeus what he wanted and you restored his sight and you watched a paralyzed man being lowered through the roof and you helped him to his feet. And we believe that you can do miracles. But even if you don't, you are still God. Lord, we remember how you called Lazarus from the tomb and restored him to life and you walked past the mourners at Jairus' house and gave his daughter back to him. And you suffered a horrendous crucifixion in order to defeat sin and death and to give us life. And we believe that you can do miracles. But even if you don't, you are still God. Lord, you told your disciples that they would do greater things than you had done, and we hear and read stories of miracles in our world of you healing the sick and setting prisoners free and releasing drug addicts from their addiction, providing the right amount of money at just the right time, and we believe that you can do miracles, but even if you don't, you are still God. God, forgive us when we doubt your goodness and your power. Increase our faith and keep us connected to the source of all of our blessings. Thank you for this day and for this congregation. And thank you for every sacrifice that has been made, every prayer that has been lifted to your great throne. Thank you for every person here. Pour out your blessing upon each of us and may we never forget that you are the source of every good thing. And all honor and praise is yours, O God, now and forevermore. Amen. Well, it's time for us to share the good news, and this is a, the moment we've been waiting for, but, but first. <laughs> Let me just say that when we began this effort at a Miracle Sunday eight months ago, we had no idea what to expect. We had no uh, sort of preconceived notions. We just knew that a $1.1 million mortgage was coming up for renewal in November, and and if we could just pay it off, then uh, we could do a whole lot more ministry that we believe God is calling us to do in this community. So that's our story. Now the total, but in a second. <laughs> I want to tell you that um, uh, we have been receiving gifts from folks for a few months, but the bulk of uh, the gifts from this congregation came in today. Personally, it was exciting for me 
this morning to see you excited and to hear many of you saying that you've been praying for this day. So without further ado, let's see today's total. Here it is. great congregation so thank you for your generosity and thank you for being part of this day our band's going to close us out with a song nine hundred and two thousand seven hundred and twenty six dollars to God be the glory and like the song says God gets all the glory for that